0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There was an oil spill off the West Australian coastline last year. The only witnesses were oil and gas workers employed by Santos, the company responsible for it. But one of these workers didn't believe the company was being entirely honest about what really happened. I'm Adele Ferguson. In this episode of The Whistleblowers, a series by background briefing, a single worker goes up against a global energy giant. What do you do when what you've seen doesn't match the official story? And just a warning, this program contains some strong language.
1: It's a busy Thursday afternoon in the nation's capital, and behind closed doors, in the offices of one of the building's newest members, things are getting frantic. Independent Senator David Pocock is preparing for a Senate estimates hearing with his staff.
2: As an independent, you're scurrying around like a rat for most of the time, from committee to committee, trying to wait to get a chance to ask questions. Estimates is a process that lets
1: politicians like Pocock question bureaucrats and ministers. But today, his office wants to use it for something else. For months, the Senator has been sitting on a small collection of documents eight pictures, two videos, and a written statement.
2: First page is a dolphin upside down, floating. Second one's another dolphin, sort of slightly on its side.
1: Um... The documents show the aftermath of an oil spill off the coast of Western Australia. It happened close to a place called Varanus Island, a sandy speck in the Indian Ocean, and also an offshore fossil fuel hub run by Australian resources giant Santos. Pocock's office has been leaked the documents in the hope he'll make them public. After much discussion, it's decided today's Senate Estimates hearing is their big chance.
2: Pocock is in his office with Sam Lawatt, one of his staffers. I mean, Sam and I were furiously Printing and unstapling stuff literally minutes before the committee was uh, going to sit again, and, and I had an opportunity to do it. So there was all the logistics of it, trying to get it right, get enough copies, have them in the right order, all the rest.
1: He makes it to the committee hearing just in time. Um,
0: Senator, sure, I'll yes. come back to you. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Senator Pocock.
1: In the room. Three desks have been set up in a U-shape. Senator Pocock takes his seat on the far right. He opens his laptop and turns towards the other members of the committee.
2: Thank you, Chair. Um, thank you uh, very much for your time here today. I've got a few photos and a brief statement I'd like to table for the committee and then just ask a few questions, if that's all right.
1: all right? <coughs> Somewhere outside of this room, the man who gave David Pocock those documents is watching on a live stream. Senator and as Pocock, he watches, he sees things aren't going to plan.
0: The the
1: Pocock is facing some resistance as he tries to table the um, documents.
0: If, uh, I think if you're wishing to table the statement, we're going to need to have a private meeting to discuss that.
1: OK. The chair of the committee to wants to hold a SNAP meeting a things, in private. That, that will Pocock agrees. A private the live stream goes dead. We can have the private okay. meeting. OK. Thank you. Um, For eight-tenths minutes, the senators remain off-screen. If the documents don't get tabled now, they'll probably never be made public. Pocock needs the documents to be covered by parliamentary privilege. If you're thinking, I'm not exactly sure how that works, well, up until recently, neither was David Pocock. Didn't know a lot, probably knew as, as much as most people. Parliamentary privilege is a special type of legal protection that only applies to statements and documents in Parliament. Pocock hopes that by using parliamentary privilege, it will protect the person who gave him the documents. But while the risk is significantly lowered, it's not eliminated. The person can still be sued by their employer and dragged into a costly and lengthy court case. They can also still be publicly
2: outed then trying to work out, well, how do we honour this person's courage? Like, do this in the right way, in a way that they, when it happens, go, well, actually, yeah, thank you, that, that, was, that was worth it, rather than, I don't know, me, me stuffing it up and <laughs> causing even more issues
1: for them. Despite these concerns, there's not really another option. It's the best protection he can offer. So now he's trying to convince the senators to let him table the documents.
2: It's up to the committee to decide. And so you're thinking, well, if, if they say no, then what do you do? This whistleblower has done all this work. And what, now you can't help them?
1: The whistleblower watches on. His identity unknown to the committee, their deliberations hidden from him eight minutes tick by. The committee comes back.
2: The committee
0: has agreed to table uh, the documents provided by uh, Senator Pocock.
2: It's a yes.
1: You have the call. Thank you,
2: Chair, And, and thank you to the committee for allowing this to happen. I really do think it's important that people have this avenue to raise concerns. This uh... David Pocock tables the documents.
1: And that means anyone can download them from the Parliament's website. One photo shows a sheen on the ocean's surface, with a large black and red tanker in the background. Another shows a tear in a pipeline hose. But the three that are the most memorable, that will provoke headlines around the world in the coming hours, are of upturned dolphins floating somewhere not far from Paranus Island. The whistleblower's statement doesn't hold back. As the documents are being
2: tabled, Pocock reads from it. The tragedy of dolphin carcasses amid a kilometre-wide oil slick should be the story, the but, it's be the story. but it's not. But it's not.
3: The story is Santos's subsequent cover-up and total disregard for the values they say they hold dear. Values such as accountability and integrity and care for the environment.
1: What you're hearing for the first time is that statement from the whistleblower's own mouth. He's never spoken publicly about this before, and we're protecting his anonymity by altering his voice and using a pseudonym. We're going to call him Alex. There are different versions about the impacts of this oil spill. Santos says this was only a minor incident. Alex disagrees, and that's why he's speaking to me. He wants people to know what happened on Varanus Island. People sometimes say Perth is the world's most isolated big city. To get to Varanus, you need to get to Perth first, then fly 1,200 kilometres north to Karatha, then take a 30-minute helicopter out over the Indian Ocean. The island is surrounded by oil and gas wells, From above, it looks like someone built an industrial park on a desert island. But once you get closer...
3: It was a stunning, magnificent place full of magic and nature and the greatest sunsets you've ever seen, full of all this marine life, all this bird life, those beautiful lizards. Um, It was, for anyone who loves nature and the environment, this place was an absolute haven. Alex was charmed by Varenus Island.
1: He loved working there.
3: I would go you know, snorkeling on my lunch breaks and I'd see a bunch of clams I used to visit uh, on the regular. Um, I, we would see sharks and rays and... At night, you'd see so much more. It's always quite weird to me going out there and being like, "Wow, well, this is just this great big giant gas plant on one of the most beautiful places in the
1: world. Santos's own environmental documents describe the area as having high species richness that includes everything from turtles to the odd pygmy blue whale. If Varanus Island isn't what you'd expect from an oil and gas hub, Alex might not be what you'd expect from an oil and gas worker. He'd never planned to end up in the industry and the longer he was there, the more uncomfortable he felt. As he worked to help bring fossil fuels out of the ground, it grew more and more concerned about climate change.
3: I remember thinking really strongly, will I be able to justify to myself 30 years down the track if I have kids or to other people and the world is burning, Australia is burning, we've got no coral reefs left. I wasn't sure if I would be able to justify it to myself that I worked in this industry and I didn't do everything in my power to change the industry. So, when the respected
1: International Energy Agency released a major report in 2021 saying no new oil or gas fields were needed, Alex took it seriously. But after hearing Santos's CEO and managing director Kevin Gallagher speak at a company-wide town hall,
3: he didn't think the company was. And I remember leaving this meeting just absolutely shattered. Just, ah... Uh. I was so disappointed because there are so many of us that do care about the environment in that industry. In some ways, all of this put Alex on the road to
1: Senator David Pocock's office. But ultimately, he went to Canberra to tell the senator what he'd seen on the day of the Varanus Island oil spill. It's a hot Sunday morning on Varanus Island and staff are starting to notice a smell in the air.
3: It's a really sickly sweet smell. Uh, maybe sort of like petrol and diesel, but more sweet. It definitely doesn't smell like it's good for you. It's not
1: just a bad smell. Staff quickly realise it's a sign something has gone wrong.
3: We should not be able to smell this strong of a condensate from the aunt. That was an indicator that there's condensate on the water. Condensate
1: is a light oil and when it's on the ocean surface, it's visible as a sheen. Today, it's being loaded onto a tanker. Santos staff check in with the tanker's crew, who confirm they're seeing a sheen on the water. There must be a leak. For
3: a core group of people, things get very frantic very, very quickly. It was all sort of going from there. Suspicion immediately
1: falls on a hose at the end of the pipeline that carries condensate onto the tanker. In Perth and on Varanus Island, things move quickly as workers try to manage
3: the spill. That involves getting support vessels out on the water to initially drop uh, tracking buoys, buoys which we drop in the middle of the spill and float with the spill so it can track where the spill is going. We have people out there to try and assess the, uh, I guess, what the actual spill is like, if they can see anything untoward. And we also get helicopters into the air to uh, survey the spill, tell us where it's going, what's at risk, how the dimensions of the spill.
1: Staff have trained for a situation like this. Soon, they confirm the source of the leak and are pumping seawater back into the pipeline to make sure no more condensate
3: escapes. It was quite an amazing thing for me to witness People of 20, 30, 40 years' experience kicking into gear and hailing themselves in in such a high-performing manner, I guess, um, and, and with such care. People really cared about making this spill impact as, as little as it could. Things are going well, but in the
1: time it takes to discover the leak, cut it off and stop any more condensate escaping... 25,000 litres have already spilled into the sea. And as the team battles on, grim news starts to spread across the island. Something's been found in
3: the water. We've spotted three three mammals floating upside down in the water that appear to be deceased. Someone said it, it's, it's dolphins, and I remember... the the room all going silent. It was a really hard thing for everyone to hear.
1: Three dead dolphins floating upside down on a calm ocean surface. White bellies reflecting the brilliant morning sun. One of them appears to be a dolphin calf.
3: Maybe painful is the wrong word, but it was quite a horrific thing for me to hear. Um, I remember thinking, well... Hmm. I work somewhere that can kill dolphins. Um, I understand that a couple of dolphins to a lot of people, is is probably not really a massive thing, but a couple of dolphins, when there's 25,000 litres of oil in the ocean, and a whole bunch of other stuff going on when you hear it so visually and can picture it in your head like that it was it was pretty shocking um and it made me feel sad genuinely it made me feel sad and i think a lot of people felt the same and people feel responsibility for that people on the island felt responsibility for that and And it's almost like a personal thing, like if we could have done something better, this wouldn't have happened. According to Alex, this is happening as the oil spill response is still in full gear. The dolphins were found in the middle of a spill, which still existed. We were still tracking it. We still had helicopters in the air looking at it. We do not see three dead dolphins floating in the water every time the 15 helicopters fly in every week. It's not a thing. That makes what happens next important.
1: Video footage shot by Santos staff shows a boat pulling up right alongside one of the dolphins,
3: close enough to touch it. But the decision was made on the island that we wouldn't collect the dolphins. I think it obviously now that was a mistake
1: Santos reports the dolphin sightings to the WA Department of Biodiversity and Conservation. It's 2pm, eight hours after the spill was first noticed. An hour later, the department responds and tells Santos to try and collect one of the dolphins. Santos staff agree, but by the time they go out and look again, the dolphins are gone. It's been a long day for staff, dragging out from before dawn
3: to well into the night. I think everyone was pretty tired. And for me also, I think there was a lot of anticipation. Uh, I was like, what's next? What's gonna happen in the investigation? How is this gonna be handled publicly? I, to be honest at the time, thought this was going to be a public incident. I, I thought this would be something that would be publicized. I thought of something of this scale to me, it seemed quite a big scale incident.
1: Alex says he doesn't see much in terms of regulators or investigations in the days that follow. Things go back to business as usual. Two weeks later, the news website WA Today publishes the first story about the spill. In it, a spokesperson for Santos calls it a minor spill with negligible impact on the
3: environment. I was shocked. Negligible environmental impact. I couldn't understand it. I was like, we saw dead dolphins. We put 25,000 litres of oil into the ocean. I do not understand how this is a negligible environmental impact. Another seven months pass. Then,
1: another article. And this time, for the first time, the death of the dolphins is publicly reported a spokesperson for Santos responds again. Here's what they say. These sightings were a couple of hours after the incident, in which time no harm would have resulted from this incident. This is new. Santos now admit the dolphins were found, but deny the oil spill had anything to do with them. Alex can't believe it.
3: Really, really misleading. Really misleading. So until Santos's articles came out denying responsibility for the dolphin deaths. I'm fairly confident that everybody on the island, supervisors included, would have believed that what happened that day had something to do with the deaths. This is what
1: pushes Alex over the edge. It's the basis for his accusation that the company is actively covering up the incident. Santos calls it minor, the regulators don't say much, and for most people, the island is out of sight and out of mind. But not for Alex.
3: This is actually not OK. You, you can't just lie to the public. You shouldn't be allowed to do that.
1: Alex thinks Santos made a range of mistakes on the day of the Varanus Island oil spill. So, had they... I've been speaking to a range of marine and oil spill experts about whether they think a spill like this would kill a dolphin. There's one thing they all agree on. You can't answer that question without a post-mortem. To do a post-mortem, you need a body. That means the decision not to collect the dolphin carcasses was an important one, not just to help figure out what happened to them, but to adjudicate Alex's claim that Santos misled the public. Alex doesn't think Santos' failure to get the dolphins was a conspiracy.
3: I think there was firstly concern about safety of people collecting the dolphins. It's not that easy thing to pick a dolphin up and get it onto a boat in the middle of an oil spill. Um, but I did also believe that there was concern about why we were going to put a dolphin, um, which is morbidly almost laughable, but yeah.
1: Santos hasn't explained why it didn't immediately collect the dolphins. But should it have known not getting them would be a problem? Is Alex right that this was a mistake? Santos' own publicly available documents provide some clues. I've asked someone to have a look at them. Alright, so search... ...Watson. James Watson is a professor of conservation science at the University of Queensland. He's doing a Control f search to try and find his own name in a document called an Oil Pollution Emergency Plan. It's the document where Santos outlines to regulators how it will limit the impact of a spill at Varanus Island. Oh, there we go. I found it. So, so, yep, yep. Before I call James Watson, he doesn't know his name is in this document. And when he sees it, he's pretty surprised. It's actually quite shocking to read this um, for a number of reasons. James Watson is mentioned here because in 2009 he was sent to monitor the environmental impact of one of Australia's worst ever oil spills. The Montara oil spill in the Timor Sea lasted 10 weeks and caused a massive sheen covering 90,000 square kilometres. Watson and his colleagues published a paper on how they went about doing the survey. The Santos document says they'll use this guide when investigating the impact of an oil spill on marine mammals like dolphins. James Watson is extremely surprised to discover this.
3: I'm not a marine mammal expert. I was, a, I was an ornithologist. I was asked to do something very quickly at the time of an emergency in 2009. Uh, this, this report we wrote was never peer-reviewed. It was just simply a report back to government to say this is what we found. And clearly in our report we say... Our survey isn't completely inadequate. So to see it, still cite it 15 years later as the protocol to do designs is, is quietly, you know, quietly horrifying.
1: So James Watson doesn't think his survey guide is the one Santos should be using to quantify the impact of an oil spill on dolphins. But he goes further than that. He says if Santos had followed his instruction, they would have known to collect the dolphins.
3: If you found dead species in the oil, um, you need to make sure what the cause of death was. It, it would have been common sense for the oil company if they actually cared to just pick up those deceased dolphins and try and work out what happened and own up to the fact if, if it was the oil, spill just own it so actually and actually own. And so we can do better um, science and planning and conservation for those species in the presence of oil rigs um, in the future.
1: Alex believes there were other mistakes too. Here's how he explained it in his
3: statement. In deference of their obligations, Santos had not mobilised environmental assessors until a week after the incident. I simply could not have known the real scale of the impact. It was never checked.
1: The company told me it did check. It said it did environmental monitoring of birds, other marine life, water and sediment. But here's something they didn't mention. A scientific monitoring team was supposed to arrive on the scene of the oil spill within four days. In fact, it took eight. This is according to a report I've seen, which was lodged in Santos's internal systems by a staff member. And by the way, the staff member wasn't Alex. It was logged six months after the spill. The report says Santos breached its own performance standards outlined in two of the documents lodged with regulators, its oil pollution emergency plan, and its environment plan. Santos has never admitted this publicly, and neither have either of the key government departments who investigated this spill. At the end of the day, it's not Alex's job to figure out what happened here. It's the job of two WA government departments. The Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions looked into the dolphin deaths. It says, without a carcass being recovered and tested, a cause of death was unable to be determined. Did they ask Santos to explain why it didn't get them? Did they tell Santos this was a mistake? In a statement, a spokesperson for the department said that questions relating to the search for the carcasses should be directed to Santos. The Department of Mines, Industry, Regulation and Safety, known as Demers, has ultimate responsibility for the spill investigation. It says it can't answer most of our questions because, 20 months later, its investigation is still ongoing. Both departments declined an interview, and neither contacted Senator David Pocock's office after Alex came forward. In his statement to Parliament, Alex accused Demers of having a cosy relationship with Santos. To me,
3: it seemed all a very self-report and accept culture. Santos self-reported, said, yeah, look, this is what we did wrong. This is what we're going to do about it. And the regulator goes, yes, okay. Demers, ever since I worked there, there was a feeling around Demers was that they were an ineffective regulator. They were nowhere near as strict or as stringent or as knowledgeable as Nopsema who is the regulator for our offshore platforms.
1: A spokesperson for Demers said they're looking at whether Santos breached WA's offshore petroleum laws. The maximum fine for that is $10,000. The department said it's treating the incident seriously, actively progressing its lines of inquiry and speaking with relevant persons. They've also made Santos change its environment plan for Veranus Island. For Alex... It's not just about this spill. It's not just about the dolphins. It's about how closely Santos is being watched and how much faith we should have in them and the system that's meant to keep them
3: honest. I am certain, I can't say I'm certain, but I I feel like I could be certain that the competence and the ability of Demers and possibly the relationship that they have in how they regulate Santos meant that Santos did not have to justify or address a lot of the stuff that went wrong here. And I think that sets a really bad precedent for them to make more of the similar mistakes. Alex isn't the only one who thinks this. A number
1: of Santos and industry insiders told me they don't see Demers as a tough regulator. Between the Varanus Island spill and Alex blowing the whistle... WA's Office of the Auditor-General released a report that said Demers is not fully effective at making sure mining projects comply with conditions to limit environmental harm. It said the department's monitoring and enforcement provide a narrow view of operator compliance and does little to deter operators from breaching conditions. The Demers spokesperson said the department accepted that report. They also praised whistleblowers, saying that protecting their anonymity is important to encourage individuals to come forward without fear of retaliation. Alex has mixed feelings about the way he came
3: forward. I wish that I could have much more clearly detailed the points of wrongdoing that Santos had done so that those articles could have picked those out and clearly explained those to the Australian public so that regulators would have had a clear list of, okay, choose, maybe we need to check these six, eight points. Unlike some of the
1: other whistleblowers you've heard from in this series, Alex still doesn't know what the final consequences of his decision will be, for Santos or for him personally. It's still possible Alex could be sued by his employer. The decision to blow the whistle could still blow back on him and land him in court. Santos may argue he breached his confidentiality obligations and they could take action. And that means it might still have major ramifications for his career. But Alex's risk-taking hasn't been for nothing. After Alex's documents were tabled in the Senate, the oil spill briefly became an international story. It looked like he got Santos's attention too. Less than a week after the hearing, Santos released its annual report. It revealed the company had commissioned what it called an independent investigation into the Varanus Islands spill. The report also showed executives and senior leadership members in the company were having part of their bonuses withheld until the investigation was complete. Santos wouldn't tell me how much that's cost executives but an estimate by the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility put the likely value at over $200,000 in total. That independent report is now complete. Santos and Demers both have a copy. Neither agreed to provide me with one. But Santos did give me a short statement. It told me the report doesn't support claims of a cover-up and that it found the incident was appropriately reported to regulators. It said the report didn't find evidence the condensate spill caused the death of the dolphins. But I still have questions, and there's one in particular I've put to Santos that they've ignored. Do they intend to come after whistleblowers who've spoken out about the Verena silence spill? It's something Alex is wondering about as well.
3: I am probably a little bit worried in terms of I don't know what could happen. Um... But, yeah, a little bit of worry. A little bit of a fucky attitude to Santos as well, to say, I think I've got a much better story than you do. And I've tried to do everything right. And if the courts went on Santos' side, so be it. But I feel very confident. I'm sure that the Australian public would be on my side for just trying to tell the truth.
0: Next week on The Whistleblowers, the Commonwealth Bank tries to kill the story that triggered a royal commission. The untold story of the dirty tricks used to discredit the whistleblowers behind one of this nation's biggest financial scandals.
1: It's the stuff of movies. Something like a John Grisham novel or a movie. That's where you see this stuff.
0: That's in the next episode of The Whistleblowers on Background Briefing. Background Briefing's sound producers are Lila Schunner and Ingrid Wagner. The reporter on this story was Max Chalmers. Producing by Ben Sveen. Additional research by Lonnie Cooper. Sound engineering by Russell Stapleton. Fact-checking by Tynan King. Our supervising producer is Mario Cristadulu. The executive producer is Fenu Falali. And I'm Adele Ferguson. You can subscribe to Background Briefing on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening.